Welcome back to the ATP podcast with me, Chris Bowers, on what's a rather special day in the annals of tennis history. It's the middle Sunday of Wimbledon, but with a very big difference. The first day of play planned in advance. All previous times when matches have been played on the middle Sunday, they've been down to a rain-affected schedule. And to mark such a global occasion and dissect the events of the first week, I'm delighted to be joined by two tennis personalities from different parts of the globe. The former WTA player Jill Krabus, who grew up on one coast of America and now lives on the other, and the commentator Peter Mercato, who's from the Grand Slam city of Melbourne. Welcome, Peter. Welcome, Jill. How, Thanks, Chris. How Hello. have we been going this first week? Excellent. I've been really in, enjoying myself. Actually, I've been here very early because I got to cover qualifying too, which I always like to cover. But the first week has been fantastic. Some great stories. Very, very nice to be over this part of the world again. It's been a little while since I was last here, but hung out at uh, the ATP 250 in Eastbourne, as well as doing a bit of qualifying for the championships. And then the first week for the Wimbledon Radio Channel with another week to come. And it's been magnificent. And the Australians have finally let the Australians out. It's <laughs> remarkable. So quick thoughts on the middle Sunday. Has it worked? Is it a non-event because it's fallen into line with everything else? Jill? To be honest, I didn't even think about it. Peter and I were just talking about that because he was asking me the same question. And in the past, I, I've gone back and forth. Sometimes I like the middle Sunday. It depends how tired I am, Chris. <laughs> Sometimes I like it. Sometimes I'm sitting on the couch when it is a day off, and I kind of wish I, tennis was on the television so I could watch it and be a part of it. So I, I go back and forth. As a player, I really enjoyed the middle Sunday because I liked coming on practicing, and the grounds were quiet. It was just a nice break in the, in the middle of the tournament. Um, but I'm really happy to be here. I think we had some fantastic matches today. I think the crowd got a little bit of a treat um, with a lot of matches today on this middle Sunday. So I enjoyed it. Yeah, it's not not an event for me. I mean, we're so used to it at all of the other majors now. It's just that it just rolls in. And obviously, fourth round matches, we're so used to them being on the, the first Sunday uh, anyway of tournaments. So we just roll with it. And the crowds roll with it too. I mean, obviously, the special um, occasion of the 100th year of Centre Court, which we were celebrating on this particular day, um, meant that there was something a little bit extra to it. But I just think it'll fall into line. I think in the years to come, we won't even notice that there's a day off. Yeah, I think that celebration was very special. It was not only a celebration of the 100 years of Wimbledon being on this particular site, but it was also a chance to celebrate the first Sunday and to bring as many past champions as are still alive back to Wimbledon. Not everyone was here, but uh, did you enjoy it, Jill? I really enjoyed it. I thought they did a very good job. I thought it was really cool to see all the champions lined up on center court. That was a special moment. I also enjoyed the images they showed on the screen on center court of when the center court was being first constructed with the black and white videos happening and then how it unfolded from there. So and then seeing past champions that we haven't seen in a while fall to their knees. It was just great to see those old images and then all of a sudden pan to the players that were able to make it standing on the court. That was that was really cool. And I was really pleased at how well received so many players were, including those who haven't always been the most popular. I'm thinking of Djokovic, I'm thinking of Hingis. Um, but they all got really good receptions. They did, and uh, Roger Federer coming out at the end got the biggest one, of course. But, you know, from champions from years gone by, Rod Laver was there, John Newcomb, Stan Smith. There were so many of the former champions uh, who were actually standing out there. And it was great that not only did they recognise those that had won multiple tournaments, they also had a special place for those who won just the one Wimbledon title, which is equally as special. And it's interesting that Federer 
was asked the question, would, you know, do you hope to play back here again? And he said yes. Well, we hope so. I think we all hope so. I love that he was like, it's kind of weird standing on center court without having to play the tournament. That's what he said. It was, it was a strange moment. But I mean, we all hope he, I think he will try and play one more. I, I don't know if that's just my heart speaking. I'm, I'm, I've heard he's doing a little bit better. We're hoping, of course, he'll play the Labor Cup. But um, yeah, I think we hope we'll see him back next year. Well, it's interesting. He, he clearly implied that he had to think long and hard about coming to Wimbledon not to play. We know Borg had that for many years as well. But anyway, Whatever we think play on the middle Sunday is very much here to stay. So let's get into some of the major talking points. And there's no doubt about the main one as we enter the second week of Wimbledon. Nick Kyrgios is into the fourth round here and remains on course for a semi-final, possible semi-final against Rafael Nadal. But many were left examining their conscience, sense of ethics, whatever the right word is, after the Australians win over Stefanos Tsitsipas on Saturday night. Now, we need to make clear that anything we say in the forthcoming discussion is very much our own personal views and not those of the ATP. And before I bring Jill and Peter in, let me just outline some of the talking points that arose from that match. Both men, Tsitsipas and Kyrgios, received code violations. Tsitsipas, two of them, so a point penalty on the second one. The first warning came from hitting a loose ball into the stands, which narrowly missed hitting a spectator. The second came from hitting a forehand during play that struck the back wall. Meanwhile, Kyrgios was constantly talking to the umpire, Damien Dumoussois, at changes of ends, and seemed to be suggesting that Tsitsipas should be defaulted. So, start with you, Peter, as the Aussie among us. Kyrgios. Great showman, or did he go too far? Curious, discuss. Oh, I love these sort of questions. I get asked a lot about uh, uh, Mr. Curious. Uh, it's a bit of both. It is a bit of both. But I think it's it's sort of the, the line is shifting as to what's sort of acceptable and what's unacceptable. And it seems that what's acceptable at the moment, for, for better or for worse, is just that constant chatter with the umpire about every, a whole bunch of different things, but just... Every sit down, everything, you know, even between points and everything like that, which if he cut that out and still did all the showy stuff and everything else that he, you know, that brings the crowds in, it would be a different narrative. Do you think he needs to do that just for his own focus or do you think it's just it's, it's got to be about him? Well, I th- it might be, but I think it's the wrong way of going about it. And I think, you know, the, I think it'll take a little while to maybe shift the line back to probably where I think it should be. But it's a matter of umpires, I guess, sort of coming in and taking a bit more control and saying, no, no, I'm not going to keep engaging you in discussion every single time. It's like a call has been made. We're not going to litigate it every single sit down and everything like that. And as I say, I mean, it just the tension in that match was just enormous. I mean, it rose, it fell. The fourth set was fantastic because we were focused on the tennis and not the other sideshows that were going on. But... You know what? He's going to argue, and he has been arguing all of all the way through this week that it brings people through the turnstiles, and it was a full house on the number one court. Well, Jill, it's interesting. In his encore interview, Kyrgios said, "The media loves to write that I'm bad for the sport, but clearly I'm not." Well, I I think it goes back and forth. I think he does put people in seats. I I felt they were both inappropriate yesterday in the match, and. 
even though I think he he puts people in seats, I, I don't think sometimes it's a behavior you want to emulate as far as with kids seeing it and stuff like that. I mean, I know he's a showmanship, but there are certain aspects of some of the way he acts on the court that, that I don't feel like should be emulated. And I don't necessarily feel like he needs that in every match with the, the question you asked Peter, because I've seen him play matches where he doesn't do that. I think it does depend on who he's playing. I think he knew a little bit that he could get underneath Sitsipas's skin and I think it proved that. I think it definitely bothered Sitsipas. He admitted it in his press conference after the match that he let it get to him. So I, I think he's capable of not having to do that every match. He's capable of it, but let me just draw something on the fact that I, I think I'm the oldest of the three of us here. I remember when John McEnroe was new on the circuit. McEnroe, Connors, Nastasi. And I remember all sorts of grandees of tennis saying, oh, this is disgraceful. Uh, these younger players, they don't know how to behave themselves. And then when McEnroe fell off his pedestal and Connors slipped down a little bit and Nastasia retired and we had another generation come along, there were plenty of people that said, oh, isn't tennis boring? We've lost the McEnroe's, the Connors, the Nastasis. In a way, we're never happy. We want people to behave themselves and yet we want people to come through the door. We want to sell tickets. We want tennis to be interesting. And I just wonder whether for the first time since McEnroe retired, we've got somebody who people will come through the door or sit in front of their television knowing that, well, they might just see a tennis match, but the chances are they'll see something extra as well. And, and that whole thing of not knowing just makes tennis more interesting. Or am I being, am I, am I leaning too far on Kyrgios' side here? Uh, well, not so much. I mean, it's just, it's not a, it's a matter of just dialing back a couple of things. It's not a matter of saying you need to be, you need to be straight down the line, not react, not have any emotion, not do any of the flashy stuff. It's just dialing back some of those things. And as Jill said, you know, he says, oh, no, don't want to be a role model and everything like that. And that's entirely fine. You don't. He's not here to be liked and everything like that. But the young people coming through will look at the way he plays, but look at the way he acts. And as emulate was kind of the word that she used. And we need to be careful of that because that permeates down to other levels of the sport. And that's what we need to be careful about. It's not about saying to Kyrgios, no, you can't do anything, can't say anything, all of that sort of stuff. It's just about dialing back certain elements of what he does out there on the court. He'll still bring people through, and yeah, you'll still have the like the former players and everything like that that we've seen in the past, but we just just need to be careful. Well, we'll continue this discussion in a minute, but let's hear from the man himself. A few weeks ago, our reporter, Erson Kaderis, sat down with Kyrgios and asked him what he imagines it's like to be his opponent and also about his daily battle to come out in a good mood. Tennis-wise, I feel like every time I'm practising, every time I'm playing, I'm trying to work on a couple of things. Mm. And you know, I think it's just about the day-by-day -day, um, battle of me waking up in a positive positive way, um, trying to make the most win or lose. You know, I want to be able to um, you know, feel good about my game. And I want to continue to make good strides, um, positive strides with my game. And, you know, I'm playing, I'm playing great. So I actually wondered, what's it like to play Kyrgios? Because you're such an entertaining player. And we never know what's going to happen in a match, you know. Do you think it's difficult for the player on the other side to actually focus when, you, you know, you're playing trick shots and interacting with fans and so forth? Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, it wouldn't be, wouldn't be easy, especially the, the unpredictable factor of, you know, what mood I'm going to be in, how I'm going to play. You know, I can definitely, 
on hard court or clay court, I can play, you know, kind of the defensive role where I'm, you know, I'm not going to miss many balls. And then on grass, I can play that kind of aggressive baseline, or, um, you know, role where I'm not giving you much rhythm. Obviously, you know, I'm not taking it too serious. And, you know, most of the tour, you know, they're every single day, every single thing they do is for tennis. And for me, you know, I just want to go out there, have fun, entertain. And sometimes it's not easy for other people to concentrate. But, you know, I've never changed, you know, since I was 10 years old to now, I've always been, you know, quite loud, emotional on the court. And, you know, I always wanted to make it theatrical and almost like a, like a, like a theatre, like a show. So um, that's never going to change, I don't think. And we love you for it. But do you think, you know, in part, is it also to kind of intimidate the opponent? Um, I wouldn't say intimidate. Um, you know, I've almost been on tour now for 10 years. So people know that I can play some really good type of tennis. Um, and when I find that balance of entertaining and actually concentrating, that's when you know, obviously I play my best tennis, but sometimes I go out there and I just want to have fun. And, you know, sometimes I just, I'm not really thinking about the results so much. I just want to go out there and feel the ball, have a bit of fun and, and, and just enjoy myself. And I think that's normal. I think everyone just wants to enjoy their job from time to time. But yeah, I mean, it's not easy. Before we move on to other topics, let me ask you one more question. As the match wore on, did you find yourself more for Kyrgios or more for Tsitsipas? Well, I was calling it, so I was right down the middle. Being as impartial as I am as a commentator. But in, inside? Oh, look, Sitsibas probably had a case. It was interesting. I think the mental game was just fascinating across the, the, the entirety of the match because Sitsipas was very much, you know, cool and calm on the outside, probably churning inside until it just started to wear him down. Kyrgios wore him down. And that moment where he hit that ball to the smallest scoreboard down the other end of the court and got the point penalty, and that was on a set point. Kyrgios was just walking, and he was smiling. And it was smiling to say, I've got you here. I've got you because you're finally the wall has come down. And I think that was just the testing that was going on there. So, look, I sympathise a little bit with, with Sitsipas, but as Kyrgios said, most of the anger was directed at the officials. It was never directed down the other end of the court. Jill? I didn't think about it about that until you asked me right now. And so I was trying to think about it as Peter was answering the question. And my my answer is I don't really feel like I was for either one more strongly. I think I was just watching everything happening. And when it ended, I it wasn't like I was excited, curious one, but it wasn't like I was sad. It's the best, I don't know. I, I had sort of a neutral position. It's interesting because... I started off with that position and as the match wore on, I began to be more and more sympathetic towards Tsitsipas. And towards the end, I was aware of myself almost wanting Tsitsipas Mm -hmm. to win because I felt that Kyrgios had pushed it too far. And yet when I think of the second week of the tournament, a Nadal-Kyrgios semi-final, they both got two matches to win before that happens and who knows what shape either of them are in. that is far more exciting than an Adal Sitsipas semi-final. Well, I, I have to say, like, whoever won that match, I want Nakashima to win. <laughs> yeah, that's fair enough. Can I just add, though, that just as a final point on all of this, that everything that we've discussed has been around about the match. It hasn't actually been about the match itself, which in itself tells you something, because the quality of tennis was extraordinarily high. When you isolate it to the winner-to-unforced-error ratio, it was so far in the positive for both players for the entirety of the match. And as I said before, without all the other stuff going on, it still would have been 
an enormously high-quality match, full of tension and drama and everything like that. The quality of tennis, particularly in that fourth set, was just something else. And I think that needs to be mentioned at some stage too. Maybe they need a little bit of an edge to to play their best tennis. Just want to stress once again that the views expressed here are those of Jill, Peter and me and don't represent any official position taken by the ATP. All this focus on Kyrgios will suit Rafael Nadal very well as he sailed into the second week almost under the radar. And uh, if you think that he has been in the world's top 10 since April 2005, since he, since he beat Roger Federer for the first time in Miami... That's phenomenal to think of the breaks he has taken over the years and he still managed to stay there. Tells you how strong he is. And there was so much doubt about whether he would play. And he sailed through his his matches. OK, his draw has been relatively kind so far. Uh, Francisco Surundolo, Ricardo Sparankis, uh, Lorenzo Sonigo, the players he's beaten. He has Botic van der Sandskulp. He could have a final run-in of Taylor Fritz in the quarters, Kyrgios in the semis and Djokovic in the final. But... So far, he's looked very good, Jill. Well, I, th- I thought he looked very good in the first round against Sorindolo. I thought Sorindolo played really well. The second round, I actually called that match against Barankas. He was mishitting a lot, wasn't he? Miss, especially on the forehand side, he was mishitting a lot of shots. And he didn't look happy or pleased with the way he was playing. Although I have to say there was a slight delay because it was later into the night. He went up three love. It started raining. And it, he well, that was the fourth mat, the fourth set. He went up three love. It started raining. There was a delay, but from that moment on, from three love to finishing the match, he looked phenomenal. And I think when you're not playing your best tennis in the beginning of the first couple matches, what's important to me in that second match was how strong he finished and he carried it over to the match against Sonigo, which I think he played really well that match and I think he he even mentioned that that was the best match that he's played so far and he was really pleased with his performance and that's what it's about is being able to tough it out those few matches you're not going to play your best all the time but he gutted it out and now he's playing much better and now he's playing with a lot more confidence so Van de Genskulp is going to be very tough because I think he's got a great game especially for this surface so that's going to be a tough match and that's going to be a test for Nadal. Of course it is absolutely but the best in the world. I'm sure we're going to talk about Novak Djokovic at some stage too. You know, they just this is how they plan their their majors. Okay, these are the matches that they're supposed to win and supposed to win pretty comfortably. I mean, look, you know, for for Nadal, there has been the, a couple of sets dropped along the way, but you know, he's gotten through that first week. Now he resets. That the whole thing starts all over again, and it goes up in degrees. But just going back to your point about the rankings, the other thing too about it is. Remembering how many times he's won in Paris and the pressure the next year to have to replicate that because if it was anything less than winning the, the, the major, then he has that tumble down the rankings. And it's only happened a handful of times, but he's been able to just get back up there again. It's extraordinary and he's setting himself up for, for a, a good second week. We'll get to the top half of the draw in a minute, where Djokovic is. But one other name I want to mention, you've mentioned Nakashima. Well, I would actually pick the other American. I think Taylor Fritz is playing really well. And actually, that could be a tough quarterfinal for Nadal, assuming they both win their fourth round matches. Fritz has been playing great. and He loves his surface. I mean, anytime you watch his match, he feels very confident. He's got a big serve, big forehand. 
won Indian Wells earlier this year, beating it all in the finals. So he's playing with a lot of confidence. And I just think he feels comfortable when he comes to the grass. And he's playing Kubler, who a great story, but has had six knee surgeries or maybe more. I don't know, but he's had such a great story. Um, so that's going to be a tough match for Fritz. But yeah, but he's slowly getting through the draw relatively easy. Hasn't dropped a set as I'm looking at that now. I didn't even realize that, but he's playing very, very good. Yeah, I've had a look at a couple of his matches, and there have only been some slight wobbles along the way, but I think now he's had that belief that he belongs right at the top of the men's game, and I think you know we'll be seeing some single-figure rankings by the end of the year too, so you can take that to the bank, the way he's playing at the moment. And I think you know he's built this tournament quite nicely. What he took out of winning that Masters 1000, but also winning at Eastbourne as well in the week before the championship started, I think is all serving him well. Everything's all positive, and he's got that belief that he can match it with the best in the world. And I, I'm really bullish for, for the way Fritz is playing, not only here, but for the second half of the year. Well, he's on the seven matches unbeaten on grass at the moment. If we go to the top half of the draw, Novak Djokovic is through to the fourth round. He was the last one to get through on the f- final day of the first week, beating Tim van Rijthoven of the Netherlands. Djokovic, for me apart from the first round where he looked a little bit stuttering, has got better and better and looks totally comfortable. Yeah, and and I think this is typical of Novak Djokovic at this event. He doesn't need a lot of lead-up matches to feel comfortable. We've seen where he has had a deep run at Roland Garros and the way he transitions onto the grass, you know, maybe a handful of, of appearances beforehand, get out on the practice court, he knows again, like we talked about with the Nadal example, how to build into a major, that he's going to feel comfortable no matter who he plays. I mean, obviously, you know, Kyrgios might have been the dangerous floater early on, but he knows he's going to back himself in to win that opening match and find his feet. He knows he's going to be out on the centre court because obviously a champion here as well, and then build from there. And, you know, there have been not that many tests uh, along the way, Obviously, it goes up again into the second week, but he'd have to be feeling confident. I mean, everything is very positive with Djokovic now at this event, and he's got so much history behind him too, and it's hard to fault the way that he's structured his tournament so far. I think it looks really good. I I agree with Peter. I think that he even said he's been really happy with his performance from from the second round. I mean, that's that's very early. A lot of times Djokovic builds his way through the tournament, gets stronger and stronger. But already in the second round, he's like, yeah, I'm pretty happy with how I've performed. It was a very clean match. So he's looking, he's looking great. Well, one thing I think also benefits Djokovic, when he was front page news around the world, but in particular in this country, in the first two weeks of January, when he flew to Australia, hoping to be able to play the Australian Open, a lot of people were saying, well, what sort of reception is he going to get at Wimbledon? And when he got here, he was very, very politely applauded. He was given a very good reception when he walked out for the Parade of Champions. And I think that makes a difference to him. I think he was prepared for a slight bit of antipathy and the fact that he hasn't had that I suspect will make him feel good going into the second week. Let's talk a little bit now about the twice former champion Andy Murray because he won his first match but then went out to John Isner on Wednesday night and when that happened you could sense the disappointment among the home nation but 
A positive spin-off of Murray's defeat is that the top-ranked Briton, Cameron Norrie, is now getting the attention he deserves from his home public. Over the past year, Norrie has gone deep in tournaments on a regular basis and he's now through to his first ever Grand Slam quarter-final after his win today against the American Tommy Paul. Norrie's one of the fittest players on the circuit and he talked about that with Candy Reid. I love running, yeah. I just haven't had a chance to to do too much of it, and I usually in the, the times that I'm resting, the my my team's telling me, "Come on, man, you need to relax. You don't don't go on run." So I haven't been running as much. Um, been playing a little bit more golf, um, but yeah, I mean, I've been trying to, especially. I'm not a player who's going to come out and and. Um, hit you off the core I have to kind of chip away point by point and and make sure I'm executing and I need to be the the top of my um level physically to to have a chance with these guys and and it's something I, I try to take care of as much as I can and take care of um the diet and and obviously the the physique as much as I can because I like playing long rallies and and um yeah, it's, it's, I'm going to have to, to keep that up in, in order to, to keep my level. How does your fitness translate to your performances on court, would you say? Yeah, I'm, I've very rarely I've lost matches because of my, my physical um, stamina and I've been able to, to keep my, my level physically. And, and um, yeah, like I said, it's something I pride myself on. Do you think anyone has outlasted you on a tennis court? There's a few guys, yeah. <laughs> I think it's it comes down. Obviously, there's so many different things. Obviously, with the execution and tennis, it's a skill sport. So um, I don't know about outlasting me, but they've, they've obviously be, uh, beaten me a, a lot. And and um, yeah, I think uh, not not too much. I would say, but uh, I'm feeling feeling good physically, and I, I try not to to lose matches because of of being tired and not prepared. So. I'm, um, usually it's because of my tennis, which is, which is a good thing at the end of the day, I guess. Apart from your fitness, uh, how do you account for your tremendous your success? You're, of course, British number one these days. Yeah, I think um, just I think I've matured a lot over the last couple of years and, and been a little bit more calmer on the court, and uh, especially in, in the bigger moments than I was, and been able to, to take my chances. And, and I think my game is pretty frustrating for, for guys to play against, and they know going in that they're going to have to be um, at the top of the game and have to, to be physical as well themselves to, to hang with me and... and um, yeah, and then I think over and above that, I've been enjoying it and enjoying everything about the tennis and I'm really embracing all of it, the travel, the um, professionalism and, and I've got a group of guys around me that are very hungry and and um, they've been extremely committed to, to, to me and, and my progress. So I'm, I'm extremely grateful for those boys and, and I don't think I'd be sitting um, here saying I'm British number one without those guys. So it's been a lot of fun and I'm... For me, I still want more, which is um, which is exciting. Jill, is fitness becoming so much part of today's tennis that we're almost in danger of relegating tennis ability to a to a secondary factor? Well, I remember talking to Nori and his coach a while ago in last the October that he won Indian Wells, where he performed so well, and that's never something that the way he's going to lose a match. I mean, it, 
he he's not going to overpower his opponents necessarily when he goes out and plays. He knows he's going to play long rallies against a lot of these guys. So he knows that some, one thing that he can control is his fitness. And he's done a phenomenal job of making sure that he's one of the fittest out there. He's such a good hustler. He's so quick around the court. And I think players know that he can outlast anyone. So I don't think he's ever going to lose a match that way. I think this is a great surface for him, the grass surface. Do you? Because he says it's not his favorite surface. Yeah, but I, well, it might not be his favorite surface. And a lot of times it isn't for these players because, first of all, the grass season's so short. And it takes a while to get used to the grass. And, I mean, a lot of times it's over and I felt like I was finally comfortable on the grass. So you, it, it takes some... It takes very quick. You have to be very quick at getting used to it. But the reason I say I think he's good. He he's good at the net. I think he's not afraid to come forward. He could use it a little bit more. He's got he's hitting through his forehand more than I've seen him. A lot of times he goes the higher, heavier shot, which which no surprise was very effective in Indian Wells when he won it because it's a slower court, bounces higher. But he's choosing to hit through the court more here, which is smart because it's going to shoot through the court. His backhand's super flat. Well, so that's just, flat anyway, isn't it? It just doesn't come up, um, which is effective on the grass and sets up the forehand even better. And so... Maybe he doesn't feel that comfortable, but obviously he's surprising himself, right? I mean, he he had a straight set win over Johnson, straight set win over Tommy Paul, which I thought was going to be more of a closer battle with the way Tommy Paul. Well, there were three very tight sets. Right. Yeah, three very tight sets, but still three sets. I mean, I thought it was going to go longer than that. And he's playing those pressure moments huge, much better. I think he's taking it on his racket, those pressure moments, and he's taking that risk, which has been a difference, I think. The British have had a good week, Peter. I mean, you know, all sorts of uh, victories for players we don't normally think of. And, um, yeah, in particular, I think Draper has come through well and Liam Brody as well. Yeah, I'm bullish for Jack Draper. I think in 12 months' time, we will see someone potentially with a seeding attached to their names. Uh, that's uh, confident. I've watched him over the last couple of weeks. And it pains me to say it, saying the Brits are doing well here at Wimbledon. Ugh, it's hard to say. But anyway, they are. And, and it's good so that... So are the Aussies. And so are the Aussies. Actually, very good point, Jill. <laughs> very, very good point. But the uh, but yeah, I mean, Liam Brody was another one um, who managed to get some wins and get through. And I think, you know, the, the Murray legacy now is to try and have a group of players that can push themselves. Obviously, Norrie's at the top of that list. I think Draper will be there sooner rather than later. And that will get the generation just behind and start pushing them as well. So the the signs are really positive on men's and women's side too. We can't forget the, the good performances of the British women too. So we've talked about the British. We must allow you a word about the Aussies, and then we'll allow Jill a word about the Americans. But uh, uh, Jason Kubler and Alex Dimino. A word. You'll get lots. Uh, Kubler, yeah, as we talked about, a great story, Kubler, because there was a time there he was only exclusively playing on clay because his body would not be able to handle playing on hard courts. I think he's got it to a state now where he is able to play full seasons and obviously play out here. Former junior champion, you know, number one and that sort of thing. High hopes. He's now starting to realise that potential and it's really great to see him come through qualifying mine to to get into the main draw and now a meeting with Taylor Fritz coming up. I'm obviously curious, we've talked about Pedimonor now, a real opportunity for him too and he's had a hell of a, an interesting run. He's had to knock out a couple of the British players. I'm not adverse to that particular policy but now he might have the opportunity. We may have Aussie versus Aussie in the quarterfinal. How good would that be, Chris? Uh, Jill... We had eight Americans into the third round. Isner, Tiafo, Johnson, Paul, Brooksby, Nakashima, Sock and Fritz. Tiafo, Paul, Nakashima and Fritz have made it through to the fourth round. 
hasn't been this good for the Americans for a long time. I, I know. It's exciting. And I think they're all they're all good friends. They're all feeding off of each other. And we see that a lot with a lot of countries that start to do well all at once is the support they get, the insp- inspiration they get. So it's great to see. I think we always knew all those players had the talent to go far. It was just about the belief to be able to string some wins together to start um, getting that more confidence. And I think we're starting to see that. To me, it, it was super exciting. And from the start of the tournament, I had picked a lot of those Americans going far because I know how well they've been playing. and I know how well they've been inspiring each other. And two players who we haven't mentioned, they've been very much going below the radar, um, David Goffin and Christian Garin. Great to see the turnaround from both of those players because they've both struggled with confidence mainly, I think, and, and I guess in Garin's case, a little bit of motivation as well to, to keep going. So the results are starting to show that that win that he had over uh, Brooksby uh, in the third round was particularly impressive for me because he was taking control of the match. We know he's been inside the world's top 20. He keeps playing like this. He'll get back inside the World's Top 20 because he looks engaged, focused, and he's playing some really good tennis. And the same with David Goffin. That was a heck of a match that he played against uh, Francis Tiafo on the number two court to get through that. We know he plays okay on the grass, but now we're just getting to see that again. And it's great to see him getting some success too. He's got to recover from four hours, 36 minutes. He'll do it because he's David Goffin. So just before we leave the singles, two finalists. From the beginning, I picked Nadal Alcaraz. So, so you Nadal's can't have still, Nadal's Nadal's still, still good. in it, but Alcaraz went out today to Yannick Sinner. So I'm going to go Nadal and Sinner. Okay. Ooh. Peter? Okay. No, I'm still thinking Djokovic, Nadal. Well, Boring, I'm, dull. I should pick some Aussies, but I'm not. I'm going with Djokovic, but I have a feeling something funny is going to happen, and I'm going to go with Taylor Fritz, even though I haven't been quite as impressed with him as I want to be to make that prediction. But I just wonder whether he's ready for a big breakthrough. He's been threatening it for a long time, and just wonder about that. You're listening to the ATP Podcast with me, Chris Bowers, alongside Jill Krabus and Peter Mercato. So let's look at the doubles. There have been very few upsets in the men's doubles. All the top pairs still going strong. But the big talking point has been about withdrawals by players still in the singles. The highest profile case was Harmony Tan pulling out of her doubles with Tamara Korpatch after Tan's win over Serena Williams. That prompted Korpatch to express her disappointment very strongly on social media. But then Nick Kyrgios did the same, letting down his partner, Tanasi Kokonakis. So there'll be no repeat of their Australian Open doubles title, at least not this year. So, Jill, is there a breach of collegiality here or is singles so prominent that any withdrawal from the doubles is now legitimate? No, I don't think so. I think, I, you know, I, we spoke to a um, French journalist that was talking about Harmony Tan after she had to pull out of the doubles. And I think she was saying that um, she is prone to a lot of injuries and she was hoping to get a lot of matches here at Wimbledon. So she signed up for the doubles. And I think after that long first round that she had against Serena, she was a bit worried because of the um, how much she's had injuries throughout her career. So I think that was a reason to pull out of doubles. I think it's I think it's a great idea if a lot of these singers, singles players can play doubles. I think it really helps your game on the singles court. It helps you transition forward, especially on the surface. It helps your serve, return, being able to feel comfortable more at the net. So I kind of wish more singles players would, would, would play doubles. I think it's very beneficial. But don't play it over the best of five sets. I think that's for the, on the men's side to be aware of, that it is best of five sets here at the championships. So 
of course, if you are going deep into both draws, it is a lot of work, particularly if you play five-set match in singles and back it up with a five-set match in the doubles. I think it's just a simple case of, in, in that particular instance you're talking about, of just having agreements in place, like, you know, to understand how, okay, if we're signing up together, are we going through the whole tournament together? What happens if one of us has a deep run and then the other just makes an assessment off that? Surely that it should just be as simple as working that out from the start and then just playing to that rule book. Well, I think that does happen sometimes. I mean, I think. But what are, happens if the two agendas clash? To, yeah. You know, you've got somebody who, I mean, Corpatch's point was this would be my first chance to play doubles. If she was going to pull out if she beat Serena Williams, why did she agree to play with me in the first place? Well, I don't think she was, that was a situation where I don't think there was a plan to pull out. I think after that match against Serena, it was such a long match. She did have strapping on her leg. I don't know if that was precautionary or whatever, but obviously she wanted to be able to still compete in the singles. And like I said, maybe because she's prone to injuries, maybe it would have been best if she just played one event but having said that you know you want to play both events if you can at Wimbledon at Grand Slams it's an exciting moment but I think there should be a communication between the two players what was interesting was that Heather Watson pulled out of her mixed doubles but didn't pull out of the women's doubles and when she was asked after her singles defeat in the fourth round why she said well I had various knee problems and I really felt that I could not play all three events. So she's pulled out of the mix. She's now lost in the singles. So she's got the women's doubles, which, you know, she's still doing well in. Yep. And for some of the, the lower-ranked players, it's income because you need to try and maximise it at events like this with so much prize money on offer. But, yeah, look, it's a, it's a tricky one and it's always that the singles is the main kind of thing. And, you know, if the players are feeling like they want to dale from practice, John McEnroe, didn't he famously say, famously say, I wanted to play the doubles so I didn't have to go and practice? And Martina Hingis at the same. Yeah, that, that you go out and you, you're still working on your game anyway. So there's there's benefits there. But it's just, I think here in particular at Wimbledon, the, the format doesn't really allow for it because it's the full, you know, three sets on the women's side with ad scoring and it's five sets on, on the men's side. So it does make it tricky to be able to play two or even three different events. Well, there's plenty of action to come in week two of Wimbledon, not just from the five main draw championships, but also the wheelchair and the junior events too. And talking about the juniors, Jill spoke to someone who knows what it's like to tread on these hallowed lawns. That was last year's Wimbledon boys singles runner-up, Victor Leloff. These are grown men. That's the first thing. I mean, they don't give you points. Most most of them don't give you any points. I mean, they're all very professional. And they're quite serious about what they do, so I mean that's I think that's the biggest difference. And I, I think the practices they're much more pretty serious. I mean, I'm serious as well, but they're like very disciplined, very focused, and they know what they want to accomplish. And I think I come learn from that. And so going forward, having that information for you, what what do you feel like is necessary for you to improve, not only in your game but as far as fitness, that to get to that next level? Well, I mean, I think definitely the physicality was a big difference. I mean, and so, I mean, I'm at the work a lot on my fitness. I mean, I definitely have to grow a little bit more into my body and hopefully I can get a little taller and improve my serve. But yeah, mainly just the fitness, getting obviously moving better, becoming quicker. But I think that would, I'm, I'm willing to put in a lot of work. So I think that'll come with time. Can you just tell us, I guess, a little bit about yourself, how you started playing tennis, your family, your background, what you enjoy to do off the court? Well, I started playing tennis when I was about three or four years old. Um, I don't remember how exactly, but I mean, I just remember I've been playing since then. Um, quite seriously, since a young age as well. I was like nine, ten years old, and I knew I wanted to do this for a living. Where did you grow up? Um, I was born in Canada. 
uh, but I only lived there for three years. Okay. And then I moved to, my parents moved to Philadelphia, like 45 minutes away from Philadelphia. And, and I lived there for about seven years. That's mostly where I grew up. Okay. North Carolina for a couple years, and then I've been in Florida the last two years. So. so you first picked up a racket in Canada or in the States? You don't remember? I don't remember. <laughs> okay. okay, did you play any other sports? I, I unfortunately did not, and I kind of regret that now, but you know, I can't, can't change the past. And as far as, since you knew such a young age that you wanted to be a professional tennis player, was that a key moment that all of a sudden came to you, or was it something, you know, as you gradually got better, that was something that you wanted to pursue? Um, there's never like a moment. I've always had that idea. I mean, I've, I've gone through a lot of ups and downs in juniors, so I've always, I've, sometimes I've had doubts, you know, like, oh yeah, but... When I was about 14 years old, I was 13, 14, I was, I won a pretty big tournament. And then I was like, okay, I, I want to do this, you know, this is, you know, I'm, this is something I want to do, I don't, I want to go, you know, all in, so, yeah. After you won, I'm just going to backtrack a little bit, going to the, the final finals that you got to of Wimbledon in the juniors. Um, something intrigued me that you said that you felt like it was a great accomplishment, but it didn't necessarily indicate your path to the pros. Um, can you explain that a little bit and, and what you meant by that as far as transitioning from juniors to pros? Usually, a lot of the guys here, obviously, they were very good juniors that, that came to the top. I mean, you look at guys like Zverev, I mean, Holger Rune as well. You know, they were great juniors, and what they, and they've obviously come up through the pros. Zverev, obviously, is older, so he's proved himself. But, uh, I mean, I think some guys, just it's different paths. I mean, some guys get lazy sometimes. Some guys get injured. Some guys just don't have the game, you know? But uh, and some guys maybe they're not as good in juniors, but they have the right idea, right mindset, or maybe they just when they're 18, 19 years old, you know, they start really clicking and they become a lot better. So, I mean, I think it's just about the day in and day out work and never being complacent. And so for you, that day in and day out work, what are your goals for yourself? Say this next year coming up. I mean, improve tremendously. In all areas, or what? Anything? Well, you said you mentioned yeah. the serve and forehand. Yeah, that the first. Serve, the serve needs improvement. Um, the backhand needs improvement. The movement it needs a lot of improvement. Um, and obviously, physically, I'll grow this next year. So, I, mean, I just, I think I, just, I need, if possible, I need to play, be around this this type of environment more. It's obviously very difficult, but um, I'm gonna, you know, work as much as I can to be able to, you know, be around these guys more. And I think just practicing with them is, it already helps me improve a lot. So. Well, we're looking forward to, to seeing that. We're looking forward to seeing so much of you. Thank you for taking the time with us today on ATP Tennis Radio. No, thank you. Appreciate it. That was last year's boys finalist, Victor Lilov, speaking to Jill. Uh, Jill, do you remember the first time you played here and what it felt like? Of course I do. Go on. It's very much. Well, it was in qualifying. So mm-hmm. I played at Roehampton. Um, my brother flew over to come watch me play because he was so excited. I was playing my first time ever at Wimbledon. He clearly didn't believe he'd play in the main draw. He flew Apparently. over to, to watch so you qualify. He figured this was his one moment to see me play. Um, I, I didn't qualify. I ended up losing first round. I think even playing at Roehampton, knowing I was at Wimbledon qualifying, um, that was overwhelming to me the first time. And, you know, I was still trying to break through. I hadn't played a lot of events. I was still playing quite a bit of the lower challenger events. So for me to be able to finally make it into the qualifying for the f- first time, I was so excited. And then the first time I was able to walk on site as a main draw player and to be able to come before anybody's here. The the tournament hasn't even started yet. Going from a rangy to walking on the court to the main site, getting the first time ever to hit on the main courts before the tournament started. I mean, the lush green grass, it's it's just 
beautiful. It, ha- it has such a special feel to it. And did you feel different as a main draw player? Yeah, I, I think just what I mean, not different as far as like how I perceive myself or anything, but different being able to walk into the main site after being at Roehampton. And I mean, it's your dream because it's at a different it's at a different venue for qualifying and all the other slams is at the same venue. And so that's a special moment, too, to be able to, OK, now I'm on the main site and you walk into the main doors. It's just it's really cool. Well, a lot of juniors will have that experience in the coming week, although we have to be careful. There are some strong years of juniors and some weak years, so we mustn't put too much pressure on the juniors who rise to the top. As we head towards the end of the show, our colleagues at the ATP Uncovered TV show have been putting a series of Wimbledon-related questions to a number of the world's top players. See if you can recognise the voices. Playing on grass. All white or some of these tournaments you get to wear a little bit of colour? What do you prefer? Yeah, I'm not a big fan of the of the all white, to, to be honest. I, you know, I, I like to have some some style, and of course, being young, you know, you, you don't really want to follow all the rules. So for sure, you want to, to add some color there. What's the garment that you pick to put some color on? I'd probably pick the shoes. You know, keep it like really, really simple on the clothes, and just make the shoes like super flashy. You know. It's a good sales pitch. Yeah. You know, right. Let's bottom. go. Nike. Come on. <laughs> Look, I, I respect the traditions, but I. Don't like getting in trouble at Wimbledon. One time, my undies were the wrong colour, and uh, I sent my dad out to go hunting for some undies because I got called to the referee's office and, and got a little bit of a, a telling off there. What's that conversation like when you get pulled into the referee's office to talk about your undergarments? Yeah, they're pretty blunt, to be honest with you. You know, we'll fine you if you don't get some white undies. Come match day, two days later, um, I had the white undies and was good to go. Probably don't need to talk about your underwear anymore. Uh, yeah. Serve and volley or chip and charge? Uh, neither. Both. Serve and volley. Which one do you like more? <laughs> chip and charge. Why? Because you can chip and then you charge. <laughs> I mean, that is pretty literal. <laughs> I think I'll stick to the two-handed return. Yeah, slash and yeah, come in. Exactly, whatever you want to call it. Fresh cut grass or worn down grass? What do you prefer? Worn out a little bit. When, when it's worn down and then there is no grass, you're playing on dirt. So yeah, probably fresh grass. So Felix likes the worn down. I think it probably plays a little closer to the clay court. Oh, I'm more like a hardcore and you get to stay back a little bit more. It slows everything down. Fresh cut. Not about the feeling, but just like it looks so nice. You know, once it's worn down, it's kind of like, doesn't look quite as neat, you know? Yeah, of course. Now you're still in the tournament. Exactly, you're doing well, yeah. You know, unfortunately that hasn't been the case for me. (laughs) If you could play any player from any generation on grass, who would it be and why? I mean, who is terrible on grass? (laughs) I would want an easy match. I would go with uh, John McEnroe. Exciting uh, player and character to watch. How are you going to deal with those outbursts? That's what's cool about it. You know, you want, you want to see that. I mean, even for us as players, it's kind of, it makes the match a little bit exciting. I'd say Borg. See how ice cold he is? And we go wooden rackets. <laughs> then I wouldn't win a game. <laughs> if you're going to go to the Wimbledon queue and you've got to stay overnight, what are three things that you will bring with you? So I'd bring a tent for sure, sleeping bags, and uh, probably a portable battery for my phone. That's actually four things. Some food. I might get hungry. What are you gonna bring? What kind of food? Uh, no. Some nuts. Oh, cause the, the cord. Is a thing. 
Oh, okay, okay. These days we all use our phone, you know, whatever we're waiting, but uh, of course, I mean, I would try to not go alone. I'd be with somebody um, that I can have a good time with. Well, what if I brought my phone and with my phone there's like the battery pack that attaches with it? <laughs> is that, is that cheating the system? Maybe a little book about tennis, you know, to pass the time. So you're gonna be on your phone with a friend and you're gonna have them read a book. Exactly. Very no, very social. Phone, portable charger probably. Smart. And Fanta. Nice. Tent. Sleeping bag. Any type of lollies. You're soaking in the moment. Everyone else threw in a phone at some point in there, so you're you know you're just taking in the cue itself. Tent, sleeping bag, lollies. All you need. Done. It just shows you how much colour there is around the tennis at Wimbledon, even if all the players have to wear white. Players you heard there were the Canadians Denis Shapovalov and Felix Auger-Aliassime, the Australians Alex Diminor and John Millman, and there was Hubert Hurkacz and Dustin Brown. Peter McArthur and Jill Krabis are still with me. OK, let's do our own very quick Wimbledon quiz. So if you were playing on grass at a tour event, Jill, would you wear all white or would you choose coloured clothing? I would want to wear all white with coloured accents. <laughs> so like the outfits that were allowed at Wimbledon in the 80s, 90s? Yeah, or even because I always like the little coloured accents. I mean, I know Wimbledon is all white and I think it looks beautiful on the green grass, but I like the little coloured maybe accent on the shoe or even a headband or a wristband. I kind of like how it pops. Peter, as the president of a tennis club on the edge of Melbourne, what's your view about playing on a grass court? No, I'd wear coloured clothes. I'd wear, well, to be honest, I'd wear whatever the sponsor told me to wear, to be, to be perfectly honest with you. But on the tour, the, the ATP tour, no, I'd be wearing the colour and just reserve the white for, for here at uh, the championships. Well, at my club, we have grass courts and I generally wear coloured clothing, but uh, in really hot weather, I quite like the all white to reflect the sun. So anyway, uh, serve and volley or chip and charge or stay at the baseline? Baseline. I don't think I've ever chipped and charged in my life. <laughs> Peter? Uh, yes, but I'd be very tired if I was chipping and charging and serving and volleying all the time. But on grass, I feel it's very, very effective to be able to do that. But I am no Maxim Cressy. I'll just point that out, Chris. Well, the frequency with which I come to the net depends on the quality of the grass court. If the grass court isn't good, I just get to the net so as I don't let the a, Smart. A, a dodgy bounce. You're much smarter than I am. Yeah. Do you prefer fresh grass or the grass that's been played on for a few days, Jill? I prefer the fresh grass because I'm only five foot three, and so the ball doesn't bounce as high, and so it can't get over my head, which was always very challenging to me. So I definitely prefer the longer grass where the ball skids through the court, stays lower. Peter's a little taller than Jill. I am. Uh, probably the more freshly cut because you want to try and reduce the amount of bad bounces, and particularly if you're going to be baseline, you don't want it sort of worn away at the edges. I mean, look, obviously we're sitting here, you know, talking about Wimbledon where the best, you know, maintenance and everything in the world, but of course around the world with other courts and stuff like that, that's why we only play on them for a short amount of time throughout the year. Well, I like the low bounds. I'm much better on the low bounds, but I love the firm grip under my feet. And I actually played it here at Wimbledon and the courts late summer are wonderful because they're quite hard and uh, the grip is actually very good. Okay, if you could play any male or female player from any generation on grass, who would it be and why? Uh, I would want to play Federer, just because I'd want to play him. <laughs> I think that's a reason enough. <laughs> um, and because he's one of the best on this surface, I would say. And I'd, well, I would like to pick a female as well. I, would, I always wanted to play Graf. 
And I missed her by a year with our career. She retired in 97. I went on tour in 98. And just watching her and what a champion she is and just how well she carried herself, I just missed that opportunity of being able to have um, the chance to play her. And so I would choose her. Peter? Oh, gosh. Well, you're playing it for the sense of occasion. You have to. So someone like a Martina Navratilova, for example, who was just so good on the surface. I mean, I, I wouldn't get a point. I wouldn't get a game. But, boy, I'd be enjoying just watching the ball, just playing, you know, to serve and volley in the way that she was able to craft her game on the grass. It's just amazing. And even, obviously, you know, modern day like Ash Barty on that side. But the men's side, yeah, probably Federer because I wanted to play Roger Federer as well. Let's be honest. I think everyone would want to have a go. We wouldn't win, but we'd have a good go at it. Um, I'm trying to think of others. Maybe Stefan Edberg would be one that, that instantly springs to mind for me with just the way that he went about his tennis. Again, I'm losing badly, but, boy, wouldn't it be good to be on the other side of the net from him? You do it for the photograph at the start. Yeah, exactly. Shake hands at the end. Like, oh, this will be quick for you, mate. No worries. I'd pick Navratilova as well. And if I had to pick a man, I suppose it would have to be Roger. It's just sort of for that for those very reasons. And finally, if you're queuing for the day sales at Wimbledon, what three things would you bring with you to have in the queue? Jill? In the queue, I would probably, well, obviously water and food would have to be essentials. And I think I would want a little puppy. <laughs> A puppy as a as company. Am I allowed to bring up? Are you allowed to bring a puppy into the? Not into the into, grounds, you're oh, not. Oh man! So you'd have to get somebody to do. So I'd have to get someone to take it with me. Well, then I would do water, food, and maybe a little wine. A little wine, Peter. I would have a speaker to play music out of. Oh, that's was a good going. idea. Maybe some games, board games, and the like too, and possibly a book or an umbrella because it's going to rain in the lot. queue as well. I only got three. Well, I did four, and this, the third one was more an and-or. Book and-or umbrella. Yes. <laughs> I would have to choose if you've only given me three options. Well, interesting choice there, unless you want to... How about, um, about earplugs to make sure I get a good night's sleep or some sort of sleep? Well, I would bring an air mattress. I would bring a very, very good book. And, uh, yeah, I'm not sure what the third thing would be. Probably uh, I would bring... I need food. I would bring someone to stand in line for me, and then I'd go back to sleep in my house. <laughs> oh, dear. I think I'd bring my own preferred breakfast because the day starts better when I have my own breakfast. Uh, Jill, that story of John Millman's about having to send his dad out to go and get the right coloured underpants. Have you ever had any moments of panic like that here at, at Wimbledon or anywhere else? Oh, I, don't, I don't think so, actually. Um... Like on on tour in general, or I mean, I know you meant here, but uh, when you said anywhere else on tour, just in general. Well, yes, I mean moments of panic. Oh well, I did have one. It wasn't here, but I did have one at a WTA event in Tokyo, where the schedule came out and the printer didn't work very well, so the schedule was a little fuzzy, and we thought my match was not before one, but it was actually not before eleven, and so I showed up at the courts at eleven on the dot. And I had to go, and we thought it was not before one, so I thought I had time. But as soon as I got off the bus, I had to run to the court and basically start. And I had no warm-up. 
I, and I just and I was so unprepared. But that was a moment. Did of you stress. win the match? I did win the match. There that, we go. That's was, the answer. You it was. There was all, no thinking. All that preparation yeah. time, it just clouds your mind. But it was a moment of stress. I, have to I say. can imagine that. So that's just about all we have time for this week. But before we go, let me mark your card for what's going up on the podcast channel throughout the week. We'll hear from one of the greatest wheelchair tennis players of all time, the Dutch star Diede de Groot. Having worked closely with him over the years, coaches Brad Stein and Neville Godwin look back on Kevin Anderson's career, including his Wimbledon final in 2018. And the former world number 21 and Wimbledon quarterfinalist Gilles Muller looks back on the time he beat Rafael Nadal here in five sets. Here's a little taster for you now. Yeah, I think that's the most popular win, let's put it that way. I, I think uh, when people talk talk about my career, that's uh, that's the win that, that comes out uh, the most. And uh, it was a big win, obviously. I mean, I, I, that was uh, one of the best matches I've ever played. And also the way it went, the match, five sets, it took forever. And then, um, yeah, it was it was a great night. So uh, not many people managed to beat Nadal in five sets, but you did it. What's the key? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think uh, in that match, I, I found my, my happy place, my happy zone. I was uh, normally known for sometimes losing it a bit on the, on the court and, and, and uh, getting upset on my, on, with myself and, and losing control a bit. But in that match, I don't know what happened. It was just the perfect day. I stayed calm throughout the whole match, won the first two sets, but playing really well. Then he stepped it up, but uh, yeah, I kept my composure in the fifth set, uh, had a few break points against me, had a few match points also earlier in that fifth set. But somehow, yeah, just managed to, to get through. So if Botic van der Sanskulp is listening, he'll need to find his happy zone if he's to beat Rafael Nadal on Monday. My thanks to Jill Krabis and Peter Mercato for joining me, Chris Bowers. And be sure to check out our podcast channel during the week for more great interviews, including a longer version of that chat with Gilles Muller. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the tennis. 